and turn to Matthew 12. A couple days ago, I was uh, riding on, driving my car, 84, and there's a, I'm just kind of, you know, on the right side, you know, right side of the lane there, and all of a sudden, this, this car just goes, just passing me really fast there, and I'm like, that guy's in a hurry, and I look, and, and, and sure enough, there's one of those little Christian fish things on the back of that car there, you know? And uh, that, is the, that is the reason why I don't put one of those on the back of my car, you know, because I just don't feel like I'm a good enough driver. And, and you know, if you're kind of like, and maybe you're, and I, I'll just, maybe I shouldn't say what kind of car it was, because it could be someone here. Uh, and I just want you to know, if you have a tendency to drive a little faster and stuff like that, uh, I have come to realize over the years that the last part of, the, of your body to actually be sanctified is your left foot, okay? And so, you know, it's going to come, and some of us are praying for you. But here he goes. He just goes blown by. He's got that little fish deal on there. And now, you see that, and you're like, well, either the owner of that car or the driver, they must be a Christian. That's why you put it on there. But that little fish, that's got a really interesting history. A little fish has been around for a long time. That wasn't just a fad that came up maybe like 40 years ago. Actually, this, it traces its origins all the way back to some of the first days of Christianity. You see, the first 300 years after the coming of Christ was a time of immense persecution for those who were Christians. And so the Christians literally had to go underground sometimes, and that's what they did. So, for instance, in Rome... They actually, the Christians dug these catacombs. In fact, it's estimated they put about 600 miles worth of tunnels in these catacombs, and they buried about, it's estimated about 4 million people. And the Christians would bury those who died, and they died in the faith. And one of the symbols that they put was that little fish, okay? And now, if you've never, ever looked at some of those little fish, they have some, like, little scribbling, like, symbols there, and it says, man, it looks like Greek to me. And indeed, it is Greek. OK, it's it says ichthus. And now that's kind of confusing. The fish itself is confusing enough. And then you put something like those Greek letters. And no wonder people don't get what our message is. But that ichthus, you know what that means? It's the Greek word for fish. And it was a Greek acrostic. They use that word fish. And it, to translate it into English, it means Jesus Christ, God's son, savior, Jesus Christ, God's son, savior. And they put that symbol in these catacombs, and they put it on the tomb. And that symbol became an, a means of identifying with Christ as Lord. And it also served as a reminder, Jesus left us here to be fishers of men. And so it was a common symbol, and it identified Christians. That's where the origins were. You see, the people that died in those first 300 years, When they died for their faith, they were absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord, even if that meant you're going to have to take our life. You could crucify us. You could throw us into a coliseum and let us be a little spectacle for you on a Sunday afternoon as you fed us the animals. But we will not not deny what we know to be true, that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. And that has really been the testimony of every generation. There are millions of of people who have never been able to recant the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. For instance, in the Dark Ages, it's estimated that 50 million believers died because of persecution. I mean, all they'd have to do is say, well, okay, it's just a little club we've got going. It's called the church, and no, he's not really Lord. And Okay, so whatever you're going to do to me, I'm out of it, right? No, we know this to be true. He is the Lord of our life. We simply can't deny it. Even just this last century, 
There have been millions, especially in Asia, Africa, um, in in Eastern Europe that have died under communist regimes because they will not recant this one solid, solemn truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that is a really powerful statement to say that he is the absolute Lord over all. I mean, how does that work with a Muslim crowd? Is that is that is that what's going to be proclaimed in the mosque today? No. How does that work with uh, folks that are coming from like Eastern religions? Buddhism, Hinduism, to explain, to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the one true exclusive Lord. You're agnostic or your atheist friends. How does that go over? They're like, no way. Friends, we have to be absolutely convinced of Jesus lordship or else we're going to amalgamate into this culture and we'll become complacent in our faith. And at best, churches will end up being country clubs rather than the proclaimers of the truth and those who are followers of the Lord. I have that's really interesting. We, we live in the pleasantness of America. We hardly take any heat. There, there's a little bit of persecution, but not much. Would we be willing to die for this statement? Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, this has got to be absolutely critically, completely clear in your head your mind, and your heart. And if you want to see how important this is, you just turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. This is the issue. Is Jesus really Lord? Well, we're going to find out. And right now we're coming kind of like it's going to be met at a head. You see, as we've been going through the gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees and the scribes have increasingly their Jewish religious establishment has been increasingly becoming antagonistic toward Jesus. He doesn't fit into their mold. He teaches things that actually make them look bad. He's drawing the masses to himself and people are calling him Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, and they don't like it one bit. In fact, he seems to be disturbing the whole religious system of Judaism, which they're the head. And we're going to find in Matthew chapter 12 that it's coming to a head. You see, Jesus makes the exclusive claim that if you're going to have a relationship with God, he says, you've got to know me. And more importantly, I have to know you. You've got to be in relationship with me. Well, how do we know that Jesus really is Lord? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, it all gets started. He is going to demonstrate that he is the sovereign Lord of the Sabbath. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. So right prior to this, Jesus said, if you're weary, you're heavy laden, I want you to come to me and I will give you rest. And now on this day, it happens to be Sabbath, they're, they're walking in these grain fields, Jesus and his disciples, and they are picking grain. Now you're going like, big deal. That's kind of a little weird, but what, what are they doing here? Well, let me first of all tell you that God wanted to show the world his benevolent nature. And he's going to do so through his people. So he gave his people the law. It was a way, it was a pointing out, this is the way to live. And, they, and one of the things he said in the law is that you were supposed to leave the corners of your field so that people who are poor or widows or orphan or foreigners, when they came by and they were hungry, they could come and take that grain and they could eat it. That was the whole purpose of that. And that's exactly what Jesus and his men are doing. They're hungry. They're not landowners. And so they go and they're starting to have some grain. Now, there's a, did you notice that it was on the Sabbath? Now, there were three key signs of Israel in which they identified as God's covenant people. 
following the Sabbath, treating the Sabbath that began on sunset and Friday to sunset on Saturday as holy and set apart to God was one of them. And you were to do no work on the Sabbath. God made that crystal clear. You see, God was going to demonstrate to the nations that he was so much in control that he could give his people a day off. They didn't have to work. In fact, he said, I don't want you to work and I will provide for you. And this is going to be a testimony to the nations. The other two signs was circumcision. And the other one that really identified the people of Israel as God's people is that God gave them some really unique dietary laws. Okay, it wasn't a fitness or health fad. He was saying, you're going to identify my people and and you're going to eat and not eat certain things. Well, the Sabbath was treated as very holy. And now the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees and scribes, they developed all sorts of rules and regulations so that the Sabbath wouldn't be broken. And in fact, what they did is instead of making the Sabbath a blessing, a day of joy in God, of fellowship with his people, of of enjoying God's presence of worship, they made it they turned it from a blessing to a burden. They had 39 categories of things that you couldn't do. And they had made all these rules about what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. I mean, it went from anything from like you couldn't make two stitches, you couldn't tie a knot, you couldn't untie a knot. They even had it figured out how many steps you could go. And they went to great lengths to create all these rules. In fact, people probably started resenting the Sabbath because it was so restricting. It was the opposite of what God intended. And when the Pharisees see Jesus and his men in the fields and they're actually taking grain in their hand and they're kind of getting it so they can get to the kernel, what they're saying is, you know what you're doing? You're harvesting. You are breaking the commandment given to us by God. The fourth commandment. You obviously aren't from him because you are a breaker of the law. That is what is being said, taking place here. They are seeing Jesus do this on the Sabbath. And verse two, but when the Pharisees saw this, and you know they were just looking, they were just waiting to pick a fight for Jesus, and now they had a classic example of it. They said to him, look, look at Jesus, you, look. Your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You see, if someone followed you, you were responsible for them. If you were a rabbi and you had those who were disciples, they were under your yoke, you were responsible for their behavior. And that's what they're saying. Like, Jesus, your guys are lawbreakers. And a heavy duty one at that. They're breaking the fourth commandment. He says, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Well, listen to what Jesus is going to say. Look at verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? Now, this might seem a little odd, like they're like charging him for bringing up. And he brings up David. And this is an event where Saul was chasing David. You'll recall. And when and David and his men were famished, they come. They one of the priests there gives them this. It's called the showbread. It was bread that was offered up to God. They would make 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. And at the end of the seventh day, it was eaten by the priest. That was the rule and the law. However, that was the ceremonial law. David's men are completely famished. They ask, do you have anything to eat? They say, we have nothing except this. And the priest allowed David to have it with no condemnation because God's ceremonial law can always be set aside to fulfill God's moral law. And so they actually gave it to him. There was never any condemnation ever given to David or to the priest for doing that. Jesus references this. Anytime he said son of David to the Jewish mind, it always brought about thoughts of Messiah because David is going to have a greater son who will reign eternally. 
Second Samuel speaks of a king who will reign eternally, and he is the son of David. Notice what Jesus says. He talks about David and his companions, because he, Jesus has been showing that indeed he is that promised Messiah. And these are his men. And he said, verse four, how he entered the house of God and how they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor with those with whom with him, but for the priests of Lone. Do you remember that? They weren't condemned for doing that. Now, he's setting them up. Then he's going to throw something else at them. Or verse five. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? You see, don't you also recall that the priests in the temple, they're working and and they're not breaking the Sabbath. Are they are they doing something in violation for God's law? And what he's doing there is he's saying, listen, if if I can go ahead and and, and eat this food with my men, it is because I truly am God. And I am not only the one who is the fulfillment of what is spoken of the law. He says, notice what he's going to say in this next next couple of statements. He says, I am greater than even the temple itself. Or he says, look, verse five, he says, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But he says, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. The only way this is possible is that if you realize that it's more than just guys working in the temple, I'm even greater than the temple itself. And this is a, just an outright claim to deity. He's saying, I'm the one who actually gave the law. I certainly know its intentions. You, on the other hand, you have actually messed it all up. He says in verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion, not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. The problem, he says, is a heart problem. You actually don't even really care about the people. God desires that you would have a heart of compassion for the people when in actuality you don't. You've gotten all locked up in your own little systems of rules and regulations. If if David could actually violate, so to speak, the ceremonial law, certainly I can break your man-made traditions. There is no law that says you couldn't eat grain on the Sabbath. But they had made all these regulations and they were basically accusing Jesus of harvesting. Now, you couldn't harvest your crops on the Sabbath and make a profit on it, but you certainly could eat. Well, they had made all sorts of restrictions. And Jesus says, you know what? You need to understand something. I am even greater than the temple itself. He says, verse seven. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. Verse eight. For the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I gave it. I created it. I know what it is intended for. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the giver of that law. I am the fulfillment of it. When they heard this, it was crystal clear in their mind that Jesus was making a claim that indeed he is God. Well, this isn't going to go over very well with these guys. Jesus wanted them to understand he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And I want you to see what's happening because, friends, Christ has made an exclusive claim that he is God. And you are either going to be with him or you're going to be against him. But there will be no middle ground. And these Pharisees and these scribes, these, they are coming at him and they're saying, absolutely not. And we're getting ready for a showdown. And in these upcoming verses, we're going to have it. Not only is Jesus greater than the temple. But we're going to find out that he is the sovereign Lord over all sickness and sin. Look at this next scene. Verse nine. Departing from there, 
he went into their synagogue. I mean, can't you see it? They kind of went out of their little synagogue to watch and just bust Jesus and his men for, quote unquote, harvesting grain. Jesus kind of gives them these statements and saying, listen, I am God himself. I am the fulfillment of the son of David promise. Well, he enters into their synagogue. He goes into their home court. And look at this. And a man was there. Verse 10. You see this? Whose hand was withered. Okay. There, here's a guy. And he has got a withered hand. Maybe he's born like that. Maybe he was uh, injured in some sort of accident. And his, his arm is all atrophied. And you've ever seen somebody with injured? It's just like it's all cut together, you know. And once you stop moving that arm, it all gets to atrophy. And pretty soon it just seizes against your body. And you live like that. It would be humiliating. Your ability to work. Come on, think about it. In an agricultural uh, society, what are you going to be able to do if you've got just only one hand that's working? And it's very possible they brought this guy in as a plant. The idea is like, all right, we usually kick you out of here or make you sit in the back. Today you got front row because Jesus isn't going to be able to resist you on the Sabbath. We got a special job for you today at the synagogue. So here they have this man. You just see the scene. Jesus enters into there. They've got their guy right there. Here's the man with a withered hand. And look at this. Ooh. And verse 10. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Something key I want to point out to you. They're not questioning whether or not Jesus could heal. You see, Jesus has been walking around Galilee long enough for them to know he does whatever he wants. And he heals anybody he wants at any time. It doesn't matter what your disease. You can be demon possessed. You can be broken limb to limb. You can have some sort of sickness. He can heal when he wants. So they're not questioning, can you? Do you have the ability to heal? The whole issue now is, can you heal on the Sabbath? You see, they had a rule. One of their rules is that you couldn't practice medicine on the Sabbath. The only way you could offer some sort of medical aid to someone is if they're just about ready to die. Sabbath, uh, I wish you could hold off another six more hours here. No, if they were just about ready to die, you could render medical aid. Apart from that, You could not practice medicine. Well, here's a guy. He's been living like this for a long time. Is he in some sort of great dire medical need where he's going to die? Absolutely not. He's a man who's been oppressed and he's got this this injury. He's got this withered arm. And they're asking this question, why? Because they're curious. They have a real sensitivity to the truth. They want to know what's going on. No. Their motive is what? Accusation. They want to accuse him. And so Jesus says, well, let me help you figure this out, men. Verse 11. And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. And they're like, well, they would know. See, they had special rules that for your animals, though, if they got into a real jam, like into a pit, you could rescue the animal. Okay. So they were like, well, yeah, you could. Of course you could do that because it's. That's really important. That's one of our sheep, you know, and you could rescue that. Well, then it says, verse 12, well, then how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, he could have just left it there, but that's just not Jesus' way. He is going to show indeed who he is and that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then look at verse 13. Then he said to the man, 
Just imagine the scene. Tenseness. Quiet. Stretch out your hand. This man hadn't stretched out his hand likely in years, maybe ever. And he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. It's kind of like a a balloon that is just being filled up. His his fingers, all of a sudden, he extended it. It was was moving. He was healed right there in his sight. they They couldn't imagine. The Pharisees, they were just like, he's done it again. And he, this time he has violated the Sabbath, and I want you to see their decision. Because really, when we come to Matthew chapter 12, this is the great turning point in this book. What if, literally, if there was a man who was healed right in front of your midst, and Jesus says, I am doing this because I am the Lord of the Sabbath, wouldn't you just fall down and say, you absolutely are Lord? Not these men. You want to be real careful if you have a hardened heart. It'll take you places you do not want to go. Look at this. But verse 14, how did the Pharisees respond? But the Pharisees went out. You can see them just storming out. And they conspired against him as how they might destroy him. This is the turning point. It's kind of like the verdict is in. I'm like, we have got to get rid of this man. He's far more than a nuisance. They're saying, this guy is going to destroy everything that is sacred to us. And we don't want to believe in him as Messiah. We've got to destroy him. Well, verse 15, but Jesus, he's aware of this. Isn't this interesting? Here's once again another statement about Jesus is aware of everything that is going on. Nothing's hidden from him. Don't think if you do something just behind a closed door that Jesus doesn't know about that. He knows all about the weekend. He knows about what's taking place behind your doors, shows that you watch on TV, what you're thinking about. He's certainly aware of what these Pharisees are thinking about and talking about. And so he, verse 15, he withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. On the Sabbath, what is he doing? He is showing that the Sabbath was meant for man to experience the goodness of God And I am here for you to experience the rest, the joy, the healing and the fulfillment. And he heals them all. And yet, verse 16, and he warned them not to tell who he is. Here again, we recounted this statement here where Jesus does this amazing, miraculous work. And you're thinking, well, certainly you want everybody to know that he can do this. And yet he oftentimes said, I don't want you to tell anybody about this. Why do you think that is? Because Jesus' primary mission wasn't to heal bodies but to rescue souls. You see, there was a great impulse among the Jewish people at this time for a Messiah to be a conquering king like David. And if Jesus just runs around does miracles and he has everybody just spreading about the miracles that Jesus is doing, it will build up this whole idea that here is a guy who's got the power to overthrow Rome, which is exactly what they wanted. Jesus, on the other hand, he heals for this purpose. So that to authenticate to the world that indeed he is the Messiah, the one true son of God. So he says, I don't want you to tell people about me, about what I'm doing, about these miracles. Well, then he says, Matthew writes this comment and he is writing this so that you and I will know what is Messiah really like? All of this that is taking place, all these miracles All of this doing things, even violating the traditions of the elders on the Sabbath to bring about fulfillment. 
He says, verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet. You see, there are about 330 prophecies given about Jesus, about Messiah, given in the Old Testament. And what Matthew is doing as we've been going through is he is point by point showing how Jesus is the fulfillment. The largest quoted prophecy is actually right here in these upcoming verses, beginning in 18 through 21. It comes from Isaiah chapter 42. And what he's doing there, he is showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Okay, and so he says, you want to know what the Messiah is like? He is exactly the way the prophecies spoke about him, especially like in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. And he goes on to quote it. He says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. This is the second time where you actually hear this. Because remember at the baptism of Jesus, what does God's the Father's voice out of heaven say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is him. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Don't miss him. You're going to find later in the transfiguration, this exact same statement is going to come. He says, I will put my spirit upon him. The work that he does is the work of the Holy Spirit. I am going to bring about the fulfillment of my promises. And he says, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. You see, the Gentiles, anybody who is a non-Jew was considered a Gentile. And he is going to proclaim justice. You do not turn. You don't repent. You don't trust in the one true God. He is going to bring about justice, judgment, because he's going to uphold any violation of those who will not honor God as God. Those who break his laws, there will be judgment. But this is how he's going to come about. And this is why the Jews should have never missed that Jesus was the Messiah. The prophecy about the servant is verse 19. He will not quarrel nor cry out. He's not going to lead some sort of vocal rebellion. He's not going to stand up and wave a flag like in a revolution in France and just call people to come to himself. He's not going to do it with war. He's not going to be talking about overthrowing the Romans. He is he's not going to quarrel and he is not going to cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to be yelling and screaming and creating a ruckus and trying to create a rebellion. No, he's not. And then he says, and as this prophecy about the servant comes, he says, a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, you might go, you know, I've seen that before and I I noticed that they're all cap letters and that's an indication to you that they are being quoted from the Old Testament. That is one of the ways they're showing you that. And you read over the battered reed, smoldering wick, and you're like, mm, I don't really quite get what that means, and you, and you just skip over it. Right? Done that? Well, actually, this is so revealing of the nature of the Messiah. A battered reed. A reed was probably one of the most common things that they had in Israel. You found them along the riverbeds, and they did all sorts of things with the reed. They could turn them into like little pens, like ink pens. They would use their fibers to make mats and paper. You could make a walking stick out of them. Shepherds would take those reeds because they're hollow inside, and you could make a little musical instrument out of it, okay? You know? And so they'd make the little musical instrument, but if it cracked or the reed got broken for whatever, what do you do with it? It's so common. You just throw it away. It's kind of like a piece of paper, right? I got more paper where that comes from. You just grab another sheet. I don't like that. You just throw it away. Well, that's what they do with these reeds. They just toss them away. If they broke, they just didn't seem to work. They didn't play music anymore. They throw it away. 
or a smoldering wick. Okay, so they had these oil lamps and they had a wick. But if the wick was like tr- not trimmed correctly or it was at the very end, what happens? It just starts smoldering. And it just makes smoke. You have a lamp for what? You want light. You don't want smoke. And so what do you do? You just, you just discard that wick and you get another one. Look again at what the prophecy about the servant is. A battered reed he'll not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. You see, the Messiah, he is going to look for those who are broken and discarded by society, who said that you are worthless. And so if you didn't have a purpose, you were broken, you were a man with a withered hand and Rome considered you useless, or the Jewish people considered you of, of little value and they just throw you aside. But the promise about the Messiah is that he cares for such people like that. You see, if you're... If your life is broken, you've been cast aside. People just, you know, whether you don't cut the grade, you're just not athletic enough, you're not beautiful enough, and you feel like you've been sidelined. People marginalize you because your social skills maybe aren't maybe what they could be. You don't measure up to the, the people on TV or even the people in your work group or fellow classmates, and you feel like you've been discarded. You need to know that Jesus comes for people like you. If you feel like your light has been distinguished, you're just kind of a smoldering wick and people come by you and like, <laughs> got to get away from you. You need to know Messiah came for people like you. He is going to bring justice. You see that justice to victory. He's going to fulfill God's rightful, righteous demands. He's going to be completely righteous, but he's going to be justice. He's going to actually pay the penalty for sin in his body on the cross. He's going to pay for sin so that those who believe in him will actually be declared right. They will be just in his sight. But for those who reject him, those who despise him, say, hey, I don't want you, Jesus, or I think I'll do my own little religion route. He will bring about judgment because there is only one way. There's only one truth and there's one life. And Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord over sin and sickness and you must believe in me. But judge justice is going to be brought to victory. But Jesus comes especially for those who are broken because it's broken people who see their need. When you're broken over your sin, then you see your need for Jesus. When life has broken you, then you start calling out to God. And until then, you generally don't. If you look around here, all these people in here, those of us who are Christians, We're the broken ones. We have been broken over our sin. We come to the one who doesn't cast out a broken reed or a smoldering wick. Philip Yancey in his book, What Good is God, writes of this unique situation where he was invited to go and to speak to a a conference that was focusing on ministry to women and prostitution. Kind of a unique invite, not your standard where you come and speak at our men's retreat sort of deal. So he talked it over to his wife and he, he said, OK, I'll go. I'm going to go on one condition, though, that I, I'll be able to ask questions of these ladies because I want to hear their story. And so he allowed them to ask all their questions at the end of the conference. He, he said, he had, I had time for one more question. And so this is what he asked. He said, he says, all these ladies and apparently many of these ladies were involved in prostitution. He says, do you know that Jesus referred to your profession? Well, I'm sure they're like, what? 
Let me read you what he said. And he actually started reading from Matthew 21, verse 31. He says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, you know, he said he was speaking to the religious authorities of his day. What do you think Jesus meant? Why did he single out prostitutes? Well, Yancey writes that for several minutes, it's dead silence in there. He wasn't going anywhere and they weren't talking. And then finally, there is a a woman. She was from Eastern Europe. She has very broken English. She stands up and she gives this response. Listen to what she says. Everyone. She has someone to look down on. Not us. We are the low. Our families, they feel shame for us. No mother nowhere looks at her little girl and says, Honey, when you grow up, I want you to be a good prostitute. Most places we are breaking the law. Believe me, we know how people feel about us. People call us names. Whore, slut, hooker, harlot. We feel it too. We are the bottom. And sometimes when you are at the low... You cry for help. So when Jesus comes, we respond. Maybe Jesus meant that. Indeed, he did. He comes for the broken. The broken people of society have been cast down. The refuse, the refuge, the marginalized, those who no one will give the time of day to, who have written off. Jesus gives, like he spoke in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But you come learn from me. You see, Jesus is showing he is he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord over all sin and sickness. But there's something else that you need to know. He is the sovereign Lord who overrules Satan. Look at verse 22. Then a demon possessed man who was blind and mute. Whoa. Wait, did you hear that? He is demon-possessed. Terrible. Blind. Oh, man, how do you function? And mute. If anybody's marginalized, anybody's a broken reed, this guy ought to qualify, right? And he was brought to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He does exactly what is prophesied about him. And he healed him. I came for people like you. And so that the mute man spoke and saw Jesus in one miracle. And this seems to be a very significant miracle. He shows that he is the ruler over the physical realm. He can heal you. He can make you see. He can make you speak. And he is ruler over the spiritual realm. If you are possessed by a demon, it is by the name of Jesus that you can be cleansed and filled with his presence. And he does so in one miracle in one verse. And look at this. This was done in a very public fashion for a specific reason. All all found in verse 23. All the crowds were amazed and they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Is this really the one we were expecting a conqueror, a military figure? But look at this man is doing everything the scriptures say. Is he really the son of David? Is he the Messiah? And it's the big crowd asking this question. Who are they asking the question to? They're asking it of their leaders because the masses are going. This is it. I don't know. What else does he have to do? 
He absolutely must be the Messiah. He must be the son of David. But it sure be nice to know what do our leaders think? What do our shepherds think? Our spiritual leaders think about this? And so they ask the question. And this is the line of demarcation. This next verse. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. The verdict, Jesus is in league with Satan. Beelzebul, that was a Philistine god, uh, very wicked. The Jews actually used it as just an epithet for Satan. Okay, and they'd, been, they'd used that for many years. And they're saying, this Jesus, I'll tell you, I'll tell you who he is. Why, he's in league with Satan. He, he does these miracles because he's a conjurer. He's a sorcerer. And by the way, even in the first couple hundred years of Christianity, that was the lie that was slandered against Jesus, the Messiah. Jews said, ah, he's not the Messiah. He's a sorcerer. That's how he's able to do those things. You couldn't deny the miracles. So what do you got to do? You have to try to destroy the miracle worker. And so they said, uh uh-uh. uh, he's not the son of David. He's not the Messiah. He does it because he's the ruler of the demons. Well, Jesus, look at this, verse 25. I don't want you to miss this. And knowing their thoughts. See, the Jews were all into external religion. It's always a danger when it's all about performance and following rules and regulations and rituals. Jesus desires a heart relationship. That's why he sees the thoughts inside. What's going on? Jesus knowing their thoughts. And he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. You got a division in a city. You got problems coming. You got divisions in your family. Unless they're resolved, it is going to be divided and you're going to deal with the wreckage. You got a division in a church. You got a lot of lives messed up. Fracture. Jesus says, you know what? That same principle is true. Verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? I want you to think about that. If Satan is divided against himself and he's he's got these demons that are trying to enforce his rule and reign in the lives of people, you think he's going to go and send someone to actually disturb that? Absolutely not. And he says, furthermore, verse 27, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? He says, he says, you know, your sons, he's talking about fellow Jewish people that are calling out to God to relieve someone and uh, from demon possession. Are they doing it because they're in league of the devil? They're like, no, we don't want to go there on that one. No, obviously not. Only God could cast out a demon, right? He says, for this reason, your own sons are going to be your judges. But he says, verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, remember the prophecy from Isaiah 42, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, I do it because the spirit of God is upon me. I am the Messiah and I am going to bring about the kingdom because I am the king where I am. There is the kingdom and those who are in league with me, who love me, who obey me, who serve me, who know me. There are in my realm. And that is true today. You know, Christ, 
He is your savior and he's your Lord. You obey him. You serve him. You love him. You're in his kingdom. His kingdom is extenuating and moving throughout the world. And he says, for you, you need to know that the kingdom of God has come upon you because I am here in your midst. And verse 29, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? And Jesus says, I will give you a little inside information of what's taking place. The strong man, Satan, does he have his way with men and women, boys and girls? Look at the wreckage that is out there. Look at the wreckage even in their time. You see, what's going to have to happen is that strong man's got to be bound up. Satan is going to be bound up. Someone stronger than Satan has to come in if you're going to start messing with Satan's work. And Jesus says, I am him. And that all gets started when Jesus makes his appearance. Satan tries to tempt him. Remember in Matthew chapter 4? And Jesus says, no way. It will not work. I will not succumb to you. You see this statement here. He's saying, I am doing the work of my father. I am rescuing souls. There is going to be a day in the millennial kingdom. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20 where Satan is literally going to be bound with a chain. You see, when Christ dies on the cross and pays for sin, it is like this. Victory is absolutely certain. And so it's kind of like we live in D-Day and V-Day is coming. D-Day, the invasion has come. Here comes Christ and he is already starting to rescue his people. There's going to be a day of absolute victory. And even after that thousand year reign of Christ, referred to in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, Satan will be actually let loose for one last time, and then he'll be eternally banished in the lake of fire in hell itself. But you see, Jesus is in the process of rescuing people who were once bound by Satan. And friends, that's with all of us. Colossians 1 uh, speaks of that for the that we were all once in the domain of darkness, but he has transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved son. You move from death to life, from darkness to light. From hell to heaven because of your relationship with Christ. And so that you will not miss this, he says this statement. And you might want to underline it. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. I don't want you to miss what Jesus has to say. There's really only two options. There is no middle ground. You are either with Jesus or you're against him. You either are gathering wheat into the barn, to use that figurative language, or you're scattering the grain. You're doing the opposite of what Jesus is trying to accomplish. But he says there is no middle ground. Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm not exactly against Jesus, and I'm not against uh, church and Christians doing their work around the world. I'm sure it's got some good for somebody. I'm just, I'm in the middle. I'm just kind of neutral. Jesus says there is no middle ground. You're either with me or you're against me. You are either in the work of gathering or you're in the work of going against of what I'm trying to do. The idea that you can sit on the fence or you can live a life of complacency is foreign to Jesus' understanding of you following him. He says, he who is not with me, you're against me. And he who does not gather with me, scatters. And now for these Jewish leadership who have made their definitive statement, we think you're in league with the devil. That's how you can do the things that you do. He says, verse 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin, 
and any blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Blasphemy has the idea with your words or your actions, you show your disdain for God and your disregard for him. He says any blasphemy, any sin that will be forgiven him. And he says, but but against the spirit shall not be forgiven. Now, there's something really critical that he is making clear here, and he is going to expand upon it in verse 42. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, and that was a title that Jesus oftentimes assumed for himself. It spoke of that in his humanity, he demonstrated deity. You speak a word against Jesus Christ. A lot of people do. Perhaps before you became a Christian, you did. He says, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit It shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. What he's saying there is you can go ahead and you can speak bad about me. You can blaspheme me. You can try to tear me apart. But while I am on this earth and you see me doing the miracles that only God can do, and I am doing it through the Holy Spirit as prophesied, and you assign that work not to the Spirit of God, but to Satan himself, he says, that is the unpardonable sin. You cannot be forgiven of it in this life or in the life to come. Now, I, I have the persuasion, if I studied the scriptures, I think the unpardonable sin could only have been committed while Jesus was walking on this earth. I think what is taking place here is that the Jewish leadership is locking in their position. We're against you and we will, as we said, will destroy you. All to bring about a fulfillment that Christ must die to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. I don't think that you can commit the unpardonable sin today because Jesus isn't physically walking on this earth. And and hence we don't see him walking on this earth where the spirit of God is doing his work. Now don't make a mistake. Don't think like, that's good. Hey listen, you go to your grave, whether that be tomorrow or ten years from now, not trusting fully in Christ you will face the full penalty of your sin and you will not experience forgiveness because forgiveness is offered to those who are walking this earth and have an opportunity to respond to Christ. And so Jesus says, what you're doing cannot be forgiven. So friends, is Jesus really Lord? The scriptures demonstrate absolutely. You see, relationship with God is only comes from trusting Jesus as Lord. And it's got to be more than just, I, I believe that up here. Do you see, the Lord wants us to live it out in our life. So I know we're getting ready to go back to school and we got our jobs and we got our athletic teams. Are you willing to identify with Christ? Now, that doesn't mean that when you walk out in the foyer, we're going to sell the little fish deals there. Okay, I'm going to leave that to your discretion if your driving is good enough. Okay. But one thing is certain, when you walk out those doors, the Lord himself wants you to represent him well. That means that, let's try this. I don't know what your regular routine is when you begin the day, but sometime before you leave your house, could you just take even a minute to confess and reinforce in your heart that Jesus is Lord? Say it. Pray it. But friends, the Lord intends for us to live it. So wherever God has you, whatever part of the vineyard you're at, 
whether you're in a nursing home and you got to come here today or you're a student or your work or you're in our neighborhood or with your kids. Let us show that Jesus is Lord, because indeed he is. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this amazing passage of scripture. How utterly clear that your son indeed is Lord, Lord of the Sabbath, Lord over all sin and sickness. Lord, who has actually overruled Satan so that people can be rescued from his domain and brought into his kingdom. And so, Father, if there is someone here today who has never truly put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, maybe they've toyed around with the idea, but they have never trusted him. Would they pray with me and say, Lord, you know all about me, you know about my life and my sin. This morning, I. I turn from myself and my waywardness and my own sin, and I trust in Jesus as my sole Savior, my only hope, and my Lord. And Father, for all of us who have known Christ, whether that has been for the last few weeks, months, years, Lord, may we have a renewed passion to live for him who is Lord, that we would not put you in a box, and that we with great joy would represent you well in this upcoming week. We ask it, Lord, to glorify you in every respect. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.